All right, good morning. It's great to see you guys. We've never met. My name's Jay. I'm a part of the team here at Westgate. So glad you're here. Uh, I know we got folks in the theater and uh, watching online. Thanks for joining us. Um, welcome. Uh, you came on a good Sunday, once, Sunday after Easter. Uh, so I, I know many of you were with us on Easter. What a day that was. Thank you for joining us there. Maybe you're sort of coming back. Maybe Easter was your first um, time with us. You're like, oh, that was all right. I might check it out. A special welcome to you. You came on a good Sunday because we're starting a new journey. For the next four weeks, we're going to explore some ideas that I think have um, deep implications for every single one of us. So let me start here. Let me show you the image of a young man. This photo was taken in the year 1918. This is a young man named Ernie. Ernie grew up in Chicago. And uh, in 1917, a year before this photo, Ernie was, uh, you know, his 18-year-old guy, and uh, this was in the midst of the Great War, which we would come to know later as World War I. And Ernie wanted to make a difference, so he enlisted. He tried to enlist in the U.S. Army, but he was rejected because he had poor eyesight. And so he thought, okay, well, I can't go in the military. They won't accept me, but I want to, make, I want to go to Europe and make a difference for my country. So Ernie enlists in the Red Cross, and the Red Cross sends Ernie to the front lines of the war in Italy. And in 1918, he is in the trenches on the front lines in the war in Italy, and he is handing out, remember he's a part of the Red Cross at this point, he's handing out cigarettes and chocolate to soldiers on the front lines. And he's handing this stuff out when a mortar blast almost kills him. And then Ernie finds himself in a hospital bed. I'll show you the next photo. Ernie finds himself in a hospital bed for six months recovering. And he's asking himself all sorts of questions. Like, this is not why I came here. I came to help. I came to make a difference. And yet, here I am, laid up in this hospital bed, not only not making a difference, I'm taking up valuable energy and resources from doctors and nurses and personnel that need to now look after me. This is not why I came. And because he's recovering, because there's not really much for him to do, Ernie does something that he had been doing for a while in his life. He starts to write. Now, Ernie had always been a writer, but he begins to write much more frequently because he's got all the time in the world. He starts writing short stories. He starts writing personal letters to friends and family. He starts journaling more deeply. And eventually, during these six months, Ernie unlocks something in himself. And eventually, Ernie Hemingway would go on to write books like The Old Man and the Sea, A Farewell to Arms, and For Whom the Bell Tolls. And he is considered today one of the greatest writers maybe ever and certainly of the 20th century. Now, an 18-year-old boy enters the war wanting to make a difference, but he's unsure how. He nearly loses his life, finds himself laying in a hospital bed, making no difference at all, and he discovers, while making no actual difference, he discovers his vocation. And that makes all the difference in the world. And this is the sort of story you and I want for our lives, is it not? We want the Ernest Hemingway story, except the almost dying because of a mortar blast part. We don't want that. But six months laying up in bed, just kind of having time to do whatever we want, that sounds awesome. And then to obviously eventually stumble upon our calling in life that leaves an indelible mark on human history. That's what we all want, Christian or not, whether you're religious or not, every person that I know longs for some version of that. 
to be able to find our calling. So for the next several weeks, you and I are going to explore all sorts of ideas around this one big idea. We're going to explore both vocation and work. Next week, we'll explore Sabbath and rest. Uh, We'll explore money and what that does to us and how we can leverage it in a way that leads to liberation and freedom. And then ultimately, we'll explore um, contentment as a whole as we navigate the complexity of all of these things. But today, again, we begin with vocation. Now, the word vocation comes from a Latin word, which means voice. It's different than just a job. It's about finding your voice. This is why some people call it a calling. You know what I mean? People who've like, they don't just have a job. They've discovered the thing they're put on the planet to do. That's some of us in this room. It's like, that's not a job. That's a calling. I am called to it. That's where that idea comes from because vocation comes from the word for voice. And again, every single one of us, I believe, want to find this. Some of us have found it. Others of us have not. But wherever we are on that spectrum, every person on the planet wants to discover their voice, their vocation, the unique thing that we sense we're called to speak into the world. So why? Where does this desire come from? How come it's so universal? In the opening lines of the Bible, literally the first words in the Bible, it says this, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. The word for created or the word for create in the original language of this text, Hebrew, is the Hebrew word bara. And bara certainly does mean like the material construction of a physical thing. It can mean that for sure. But it means much more than that. The word bara means beyond just the material construction of a physical thing, the word bara means to give order to something, to infuse something with meaning and with purpose. It means to beautify something. In fact, the early church fathers were um, fond of saying that in Genesis 1-1, God is adorning creation. You know, we're many months away still, but um, we're going to eventually get into the holiday season. And what is going to happen for many of us in this room? We're going to hit November, maybe post-Thanksgiving. Those of you who are overachievers, it'll be like right after October. You will open the box of lights in your garage, and you will discover that these Christmas lights are a tangled mess. And you will, as you do every year, you will ask yourself, why did I not put these back in the box in a more orderly fashion? But what will you do next? You, like me, will spend the next 20, 30 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe two, I don't know, untangling, gently untangling the mess. And then you'll grab your ladder And then you will spend however long hanging these lights up on your house. And eventually, after all of that hard work, after all of the frustration, you will plug the lights in and you will have adorned your home. This is Barak. It's not just making stuff. It is that, but it's more than that. It is bringing order and beauty and goodness. It is bringing meaning into the meaningless. It's bringing goodness and beauty into that which is totally broken. And then here's how the story continues. Really fascinating. 
Genesis 1, verses 26 to 27. God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image and the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And so a God who creates in the beginning, his first action in the human story is to create, it's to bara, it's to make stuff and to order it and bring meaning and purpose and goodness and beauty. That God then makes human beings. And when that God, that creative God makes humans, he makes humans in his image. Now what this does not mean is that we physically look like God. It means something much deeper. It means that God imbues within us his creative goodness. This is why we all long for vocation. This is why all of us, Christian or not, desire to bring about good in the world, to leave a lasting impact, a legacy, some might call it. This whole concept of image of God, there's a theological phrase for it, imago Dei, which literally means image of God. And one theologian describes it this way, that the imago Dei, the image of God in us as humans, it designates the calling of human beings as God's representatives and agents in the world, granted authorizing power to share in God's rule or administration of the earth's resources and creatures. So being made in the image of God means that for us as human beings, we represent and partner in God's creative action in the world. It means that as image bearers of God, you and I, we create alongside God to bring order amid chaos, to infuse meaning into the mundane and to bring good unseen potential to bear. That's why you and I all have that longing in us. That's why. You were made in the image of a God who does creative work, bringing order and beauty and goodness. Now, here's what's really fascinating. The idea that human beings were made in a creative God's image was unheard of in the ancient world. For the Genesis story to tell us this was provocative and unexpected. Let me explain. I'll show you an image here. This is um, a location, this is an actual physical place in Egypt, you can see it today, uh, called the Avenue of the Sphinxes, because it's a long road, an avenue, with these sculptures of sphinxes. Now let me explain. The Avenue of the Sphinxes, this has been excavated, some of it is in really good condition. But the Avenue of the Sphinxes was originally created, it was constructed around the 13th century BC, about 13, 1400 years before the birth of Jesus. And at the time, in the 13th century BC, in Egypt, the Avenue of Sphinxes was a two miles long pathway. And on each end of this two miles were temples, two very large prominent temples dedicated to significant gods in the Egyptian pagan pantheon of gods. And along the avenue, along this two miles stretch, it was aligned with about 1,300 statues, just like the ones you're seeing now. 
1,300 statues in the image of a lion's body with an Egyptian king's head, a pharaoh's head. You can see it there. And this avenue was used constantly in ancient Egypt. In their pagan religious sort of calendar, the Egyptians had all sorts of celebrations and festivals dedicated to the pantheon of gods. And every time they had a celebration or festival, all of the people, all the people of Egypt would gather. And they would walk from one temple down the avenue, surrounded by these statues, to the other temple. And one of the reasons they did this was because the Egyptian rulers wanted to remind the Egyptian people that you are not God, nor do you bear the image of God. The only ones who bear God's image are the kings. That's why the heads of these statues are pharaohs. The only ones who bear God's image are our deified kings and these statues that represent them. You are just a little, tiny, insignificant human. The meaning of your life is to serve the gods, to bring them pleasure and to give them rest. The meaning of your life as a human is to labor and toil at the service of the gods. And when your life is done, you die, and that is that. They would walk the avenue all throughout the year, being reminded that there are gods, and there are you, and you are nothing like the gods. You are simply their slaves. This was the dominant worldview in the ancient Near East, that the gods imaged themselves through deified kings and these sort of man-made constructions, that everybody else had nothing to do with the gods. You were simply subservient. You lived to serve the kings, gods, the gods' chosen image bearers, and the gods themselves. But the one true God doesn't need images. Let me read for you Exodus chapter 20. Some of you know this story. This is the story of when God sends Moses to rescue the Israelite people out of where? Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness to the promised land. Does anybody know around when this story takes place? The 13th century BC. Some of us thought like, you know, God's words in the wilderness about not making an image was just random, spun up out of thin air, right? Let me read the story. Let me read the passage to you. God says this. You shall not make for yourself an image, in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. God gives this instruction to his people as they are being led out of Egypt right around the same time that the avenue of sphinxes would have been constructed. Out of the shadows of this sort of broken society that told them, God is God, you are not, you are simply here to be subservient and to serve. And why does God say do not make images? Because the one true God already has image bearers. He doesn't need statues and he doesn't need kings. The one true God says every man and woman bears my image. This does not mean you and I are God, we are not but we bear his image. 
We are made in his likeness. This is why, again, every person on the planet longs for vocation, for calling, for meaning, to create something good in the world because you are made in the image of a creative God who brings goodness into the world. This is why we don't worship the images of gods. We only worship the one true creative God. But one of the reasons why so many of us, some of us in this room and certainly so many people that we know, one of the reasons we struggle to find meaning and purpose and significance in our work is because you and I continue parading down the avenue still. Let me explain. Um, you know, sometimes you read uh, like news articles and social media, whatever, like all the prognosticators, they basically, they will tell you that there has been a steep decline in religion in the modern West, that, that America in particular is no longer a religious nation. They are lying to you. We are more religious than maybe we have ever been. As faith has declined in the modern West, we haven't become less religious. We have simply redirected our worship. There's a fantastic little book, not a Christian book, uh, written by a secular journalist named Derek Thompson. It just came out. It's called On Work. It's a thin little book. You could probably read it in a day. In this book, remember, non-Christian secular journalist writing here, he says this, the decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Everybody worships something. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. The belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. And think about this line. I've been wrestling with this line for, a long time, for weeks. Our desks were never meant to be our altars. The modern labor force evolved to serve the needs of consumers and capitalists, not to satisfy tens of millions of people seeking transcendence at the office. Secular work culture is in fact a fervently religious culture, especially so in Silicon Valley. Whatever your work, whether it's an office or at home raising children or teaching a classroom or starting a business or um, doing construction, white collar, blue collar, whatever it might be, the, whatever work we do runs the risk, as does everything in life, it runs the risk of being an idol. And this is what has happened to so many, particularly here in the place we call home. So many find themselves seeking purpose and meaning by worshiping at the various altars, right? Landing the dream job, getting the raise, raising the perfect kids, rising to the C-suite, the chief whatever officer it may be, the IPO, the status, achievement, wealth, fame, winning teacher of the year, making sure your kids are out of everybody else, so you send them to Kumon or whatever, right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Some of you have trauma. You're like, Kumon, uh, and you seized up or whatever. My wife went to Kumon. She's brilliant, so maybe it works. I don't know, you guys. But the point is, what, like, whatever it is you do, our desks or the job or whatever achievement looks like. These things were never meant to be our altars. 
You began worshiping there, and listen, you become what you worship. And so if the thing you worship is achievement and success and whatever, you will become a human that it, whose meaning is, is designed around those things. Therefore, if you do not achieve, if you are not successful, then your life is meaningless. This is, this is what's happening in workplaces and in lives all over the modern Western world. But here's the thing. Work is hard. It's intended to be hard. Let me read for you Genesis chapter 3. What does the story say? This is after sin enters the story. God says, as a result of sin, as a result of human rebellion against God's plan for his glory and for our flourishing, God says, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Let me, let me just, let's just name the elephant in the room. This passage is a total bummer of a passage. Let me give you my paraphrase of this text. God is basically saying, hey, listen, you're gonna work, and work is going to be super hard, and it's not going to be fun, and then you're going to die. That's what God says. That's this text. That's what God says. Because of sin, work is hard. So many of us put so much energy, so much effort in trying to make work easier when in reality, when the current work gets easier, something in you, because you are designed to bring goodness and beauty and order into a totally broken, sinful, depraved world, something in you will look for another challenge. And that challenge will not be easy. Work will never ever become easy all the time because sin has cursed the ground. But you notice the ground is cursed, not the work. Sometimes we think, oh my goodness, this job or this responsibility or this thing, it's cursed. No, it's not. It's hard. It's painful. It is struggle because the ground is cursed. The spaces we inhabit, the relationships we pursue, the world in which we live is full of sin and brokenness. But the work is not cursed, it's just hard. Because anything meaningful, anything that brings beauty into brokenness, anything that tries to bring order into chaos, anytime you try to infuse meaning into the mundane, it is hard. But the work is blessed. This means that for the people of God, vocation is about, again, partnering with God to bring order to chaos, to bring meaning into the mundane, and to bring the good unseen potential all around us to bear in whatever we do. Again, teaching a classroom, starting a business, coding, construction, meeting with clients, raising a family, whatever your nine to five looks like, whatever you do, Vocation in God's kingdom means order into chaos, meaning into the mundane, 
goodness into the brokenness, bringing about unseen potential to bear. Paul writes in Colossians 3, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Those of you tomorrow who are gonna get in your car and drive to your office at Apple, Tim Cook is not actually your boss. I mean, he is, right? Don't go into the office tomorrow and say that to people. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying. If you are a follower of Jesus, the work you do is done unto the Lord, not unto other people. Now, this does not mean whatever your job, it doesn't mean like you go and just slack off. It's like, ah, I know I got the email inbox is super full, but the Lord's not there. The Lord's right here. It's like, I just, yeah, Jay was right. I just work unto the Lord. If you do that, you will be fired, right? And you will not have a job and you will not have the opportunity to bring order into chaos, goodness uh, into the disorder, right? It doesn't mean we slack off. In fact, it means the opposite. It means that we give ourselves to the work with everything we have, every ounce of skill and energy and effort. But what changes is that you do not do it in order to primarily climb the ladder or achieve or accumulate. You do it as a participatory partnership with a creative God who is trying to bring good into a broken world, whatever that looks like in your particular space. You know, that phrase, work at it with all your heart, that phrase, all your heart, in the original language of Colossians, Greek, is a single word. And it's a word that um, comes from a Greek word where the root meaning is the word soul. So essentially what Paul is saying is, whatever you do, do soul work. The Christian vocation is soul work, whatever the job may be, regardless of the literal work being done, Jesus followers do the work as a way of burying our souls. And what is your soul? It's the the conglomeration, it's like the compilation of everything you are, your heart, mind, body, your intentions, your motivations. Christian vocation is working as soul work, bearing our souls, laying our lives down before God and offering it to the world as a labor of love. We get this backwards, especially in a place like Silicon Valley. In fact, let me show you a chart here. Vocation, not for everybody, but for a lot of people, I think, in Silicon Valley, vocation kind of looks like this. We begin by comparing and striving. Right? We don't like to admit it, but often that's how we set our barometers for success. It's like this person is accomplishing this. That person is accomplishing that. This person has moved up the ladder in this way. This person is raising their family where all of their children are achieving all of this. I compare and then I strive. It's like if I want success, if I want meaning and purpose, I've got to achieve all of that. So then you strive and it's hard and you struggle right, you begin to struggle and do everything you can to meet expectations, your own or the expectations of others. And then eventually for some of us, we succeed. We get there. That's a lot of you in this room. Like you have achieved in ways that are unfathomable. You succeed. 
And then you, you finally arrive at a place where you're like, okay, this is it. This is, why I'm, this is why I'm here. I'm successful, so I know that it affirms this is why I'm here. This is my vocation. The problem is, once you succeed, eventually something in you does what? Your eyes begin to wander to other places, and you're back at square one. You begin comparing again, and then you strive, and then you struggle, and maybe you succeed, and you're like, I made it, and then you compare. It's this vicious, endless cycle that leaves you void of actual meaning and purpose, significance. But vocation for followers of Jesus reverses the order. Vocation for followers of Jesus begins by receiving the gift of vocation. And what is the gift of vocation? It's not about the job you are doing primarily. It's about partnering with God to bring order into chaos, to bring goodness into brokenness, to bring beauty into all that is in disarray. Whatever that looks like, vocation as a gift from God is something you are. It's not just something you do. It's the way you insert yourself into broken situations, knowing that the work will be hard, but doing it because it is full of meaning. Because meaningful things are always hard. And then you struggle, because again, it's hard. But as you struggle, the barometer for success is not how much did you succeed based on worldly cultural metrics. Instead, it's how much did I surrender? Was I faithful? Did I struggle in a way that was honoring to God and work for the good of others? And did I surrender that to God? And ultimately, it leads to burying our souls before God, giving it every ounce of energy and effort and skill and resource we have, and then giving the work away. Giving it away, again, for the glory of God and for the good of all. So that's the question. In your workplace, in your career, as you raise your kids, care for your family, teach your class, counsel your clients, develop your products, run your business, whatever it might be, what would change if today you decided that when you get to work tomorrow, you would receive this calling as a vocational calling from God? What would change if you began to do whatever work you do as soul work? offering every bit of energy and skill as a gift back to God? What would change if you surrendered your desire for earthly success and gave yourself fully to the work of helping create the sort of world God intends in whatever spheres of life you inhabit? Listen, this um, like a 35-minute teaching is not adequate. So I wanna let you know about one resource. I'll show you a slide here. Um, we are beginning to offer mentorship here at our church. So there are men and women who um, have been, many of them, you know, successful in a variety of ways here in Silicon Valley over many decades. But most importantly, these are men and women who love Jesus and have somehow, way discovered um, meaning and purpose in their work that goes far beyond earthly success. And so if you go to our website, you can scan that QR code. There are uh, a number of mentors who will, um, you can just reach out to them directly, and they all have descriptions. 
sort of their areas of specialization, sort of their work and life history. And it's not all just work career. A lot of them will focus on that, but we've got mentors who um, would love to talk to you about um, being a stay-at-home parent, raising children, um, pursuing Jesus while you're also trying to start a business or whatever. All sorts of different uh, ways that you can connect. So I would highly encourage you. Um, listen, these mentoring relationships, they're not gonna, like, if you're like, oh, I'm gonna connect with one of those guys and they're gonna help me create my business plan, then don't. That's not what they're here for. Um, or I'm gonna pitch them my great new idea and maybe they'll be my angel investor. Like, that is not what this is. These are men and women who love Jesus, have been through the ringer of Silicon Valley, and would love to help you follow Jesus faithfully in whatever vocation uh, you're navigating. So if that would be helpful to you, then um, go to our website and, and just check out the mentors there. They'd love to meet with you um, for about six to eight sessions just to start, and then you can go from there. Um, I'm going to invite Mark and the team to come back up, and we're going to sing and respond here together. Um, but... <clears throat> I want to show you an image. This is uh, an album cover. This is an album cover uh, of an album, a jazz album, called A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. Anybody know or listen to John Coltrane? Okay. Um, that's really disappointing, you guys. <laughs> Come on, get with it. Okay. John Coltrane is widely considered one of the greatest jazz musicians ever in the history of jazz. And uh, he released this album, A Love Supreme, in 1964. Now, what's important to know is that by 1964, John Coltrane was already super famous. He was already widely considered, again, one of the greatest musicians alive. But he records this album. He and his band record this album, A Love Supreme. They record it all in one session. And um, the reason John Coltrane wrote composed, and then recorded this album was because several years earlier, in 1957, after many years of achieving worldly success and yet struggling to find meaning, after many years of alcohol and substance abuse, in 1957, John Coltrane had had a spiritual awakening. He encountered the risen Christ in a meaningful way. And he wrote and recorded the songs that would become a love supreme as a way to tell the story of God's work in his life. And in the liner notes of the album, you guys remember liner notes? We all listen to music on like Apple Music and Spotify now. But liner notes, like I'm dating myself back when I used to buy CDs. Some of you are older, so like 8-tracks, vinyl records, cave paintings <laughs> or whatever, you know, whatever it was. Right? Liner notes were when the artists would tell you, like, why they wrote the album and do thank yous and things like that. Let me read for you a part of John Coltrane's liner notes. I would like to tell you that no matter what, he, God, is gracious and merciful. His way is in love. It is truly a love supreme. This album is a humble offering to him, an attempt to say, thank you, God, through our work. And may he help and strengthen all men and women in every good endeavor. No matter what you are going to get up and do tomorrow morning, when the alarm goes off at 6 or 6.30 or 5 or whenever, and there's something in you that's like, oh gosh, not again, another Monday. 
what would it look like for you as you prepare for the day tomorrow to think about whatever endeavor you are going to embark on, not as something you do to achieve success or status or wealth, but instead to think about whatever it is you are going to do as an offering to God to say thank you. That he has given you gifts and skills and resources to bring good into a broken world, to bring order into the chaos, to bring meaning into the meaningless. What would it look like for you to do whatever work you do as a means of adorning God's good creation with him? The writer Dorothy Sayer put it this way, that work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. It is the medium in which we offer ourselves to God. So whatever you do, do it as a humble offering to God, and you will discover meaning and purpose and joy and vocation, no matter the work. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and sing together.